Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of John. I met with uh, George this week and we were having lunch and he says, Pastor Wayne, I was, I was reading a little bit of head. I'm excited about this part. And he's reading and sometimes it's like John 12 or John 14. And I said, I said, okay, you can read ahead, but we're not going to get to that part till like March of next year. We're making our way verse by verse to the book of John. So you can read ahead, but it might be a while till we get there. Hallelujah. So we are finally, we've been uh, uh, going for a couple months now, and we're finally making it to chapter 4. And uh, once again, we're going to find ourselves returning to Jesus' ministry here in chapter 4. So remember, so far he, he talks about Jesus, and then he talks about John the Baptist, and then he talks about Jesus, and then he talks about John the Baptist. Now we're back to Jesus. And uh, here we're, we're going to find that he's uh, ministering in Samaria. And he's going to be speaking to the, to the Samaritan woman who had many husbands, the one that was at the well today. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to see him ministering to his disciples, where he's going to minister to that nobleman and his household. And the common theme that we're going to see in chapter 4 is this idea of trusting in Jesus. And we're also going to see something that's actually pretty amazing, if you think about it, is that Trusting in Jesus and receiving from him is not delegated to one specific group of people, not one class of people. It's not like that you have to be rich and famous if you want to know Jesus. It's available to everybody who will put their trust in him. And like I said, specifically today, we're going to start talking about the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's kind of a, an interesting story because she kind of expects Jesus to just ignore her. And she's shocked when Jesus actually speaks to her. Because the reality is, is that uh, this idea of prejudice, and it's not a new thing to today's world. It's been going on for a long time. And the Jews were very prejudiced towards the Samaritans. And she was used to just being ridiculed and ignored. But instead, now this Jewish man wants to talk to her. And it's amazing because then in the course of speaking to her, Jesus ends up revealing that he is the Messiah. He's the one that's going to give water that will well up in those who drink of it, and it'll give eternal life. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So last week, if you recall, we were talking about how in the Judean countryside, both John and Jesus were baptizing people. Um, both of their ministries were a pretty big deal. These weren't small ministries. These were both very big ministries. The people were probably pretty excited to have these men out in the countryside ministering to them. But what was happening is it began to draw the attention of all the religious leaders in the area. And one of the things that's interesting here is that it says that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and, making and baptizing more disciples than John. It says they had heard that. And it's funny because the next thing uh, John the Apostle says is, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he wants to correct something here. He said, listen, it's not Jesus that was doing the baptizing. It was his ministry that was the, the disciples in his ministry. And the reason why he's clarifying this is because I think he's trying to point out and reiterate what he had said earlier in the chapter. In John one thirty three, he says, and this is... Uh, uh, 
John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who had baptized, that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see, the point that the John the Apostle, man, it's so hard for me to keep the Johns uh, in order when I'm talking to you about this. So if I slip up, you just have to forgive me and know, you have to, to, to uh, uh, intuit who I'm talking about. But anyway, John the Apostle is making this point about what John the Baptist said because we didn't want to have any con- confusion. Jesus was not one coming to baptize with water. He was one coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But however... Jesus' disciples, they were baptizing with water. And today we continue to do the same just as as Jesus has commanded us to do. It's actually something that uh, we're going to have the opportunity to be a part of today when when, uh, Andy, she's not here, she's in the back, but she is, oh, she is here, sorry. Her her giant father is next to her and he's overshadowing her. I didn't see her. So uh, yeah, if you want to know who her father is, when he stands up, he is the tallest man in the room by far. So... (laughs) Anyway, she is getting baptized today, and, and it's an amazing thing. And, and Jesus actually said that we're to do this. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what we find out here is that if you're a disciple of Jesus, that you need to get baptized. It turns out this isn't just a uh, good idea. It's actually a command that we're to be baptized. It's the next step. When you believe, then you get baptized. And then as time went on, Jesus' ministry in the area begins to grow. And it's getting even larger than John's because John had a pretty big ministry going on as well, but it's getting bigger than him. And, and the thing is, is that John's ministry, John the, the Baptist ministry, is already driving the religious leaders crazy. He's baptizing them, which is not really a Jewish thing. You know, the, we talked about last week where, where they're wondering, like, what is this more cleansing that we have to do? We've already got cleansing rituals from Moses and all this stuff. What is this new one that you have? Why do we have to do this now? So John's ministry is already driving the religious leaders crazy. And if his ministry was already causing a stir, even though they seemed to tolerate him begrudgingly because, well, they just didn't want to get beat up by all the people because all the people recognized John the Baptist as, an, as, a, as a prophet, so they didn't want to, to, to basically have a mob from the crowd coming after them. But so they're begrudgingly tolerating John the Baptist's ministry, but now Jesus' ministry is getting even bigger than his. So think about that. If John's ministry is already causing an uproar, it's already causing a mess, imagine how they're feeling about Jesus' ministry, who's already getting larger than John's. So Jesus says here, knowing that they're taking notice, he says he learned the Pharisees had heard about him. He says he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And this is interesting to me because it almost seems like Jesus is running away. Why is Jesus, Jesus hears about these guys getting upset at him, so now he's going to take off? He's going to run away? And, but sometimes we have to make sure that we're, we're thinking about things in the context of what's going on. So a couple chapters ago, anybody ever measure time in the Bible in chapters? It's the funniest thing to me. Just, just two chapters ago, wasn't that long? Uh, in chapter 2, Jesus told, told his mother that his time had not yet come. Remember when, when, when Mama said, hey, 
talk to him. He's going to take care of your issue here. And uh, Jesus says, well, it's not yet time. And she doesn't listen to him. She just says <laughs> what he says. That's a funny story to me. Uh, it's true here as well. It's not yet Jesus' time. Jesus isn't running away because he's afraid of the Pharisees. The problem is, is that if Jesus had stayed, then conflict would have likely been the result of him staying in the area. And uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we all kind of know what is the result of conflict with religious leaders for Jesus. But it's not yet his time. It's not, we've got a few more years of ministering and things to take care of. In addition, Jesus leaves towards Galilee, and to do so, we're going to see he passes through Samaria, and, and to, to make it to Galilee and to deal with the, the Gentiles is actually fulfilling prophecy. In Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and in the latter time, he was made glorious the way of the sea." The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep, on them has light shone. This is referring to the Messiah bringing light to the Gentiles. This is a prophetic passage about Jesus. It's kind of hard to fulfill that if he gets captured and killed much earlier than God intended him to do. So Jesus isn't running away. He's just making sure that he's going to be able to fulfill God's plan and purpose for when he lived on this earth. So as he makes his way to Galilee, his first visit to Judea ends. And it's interesting that the Gospel of John is the only one who records this. You can't read about this visit, this first visit where he's, he's in the area and he interacts with John in the, the other Gospels. It's only mentioned in the Gospel of John. And as we continue on in verses uh, 4 through 6, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So if you want to get to Galilee, if you have a map, and I probably should have put one up there, but if you have a map, if you want to get from Judea to Galilee, you either have to go through Samaria or go around Samaria. That's your two options. And it uh, turns out that because most Jews, or probably all the Jews, hated the Samarians, they would actually always go around. They would take an alternate route. And if you look at it, it actually takes them all the way through Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan. So if we have, we have uh, uh, Judea here, we have Galilee up here, Samaria's in between, the Jordan River's over on, on this side, they would take this long route around Samaria next to the river and come back up into Galilee, Galilee. And it was a much longer trip, but they really hated those filthy Samarians so much that they just couldn't go inside there. Their words, not mine. So... Uh, they, they, uh, they really didn't like them, so they always went around. There really was a deep-rooted hatred of the Samaritans by the Jews. But Jesus, he's not really influenced by these sorts of things. Jesus doesn't have time to deal with these, these minor quibbles that these people are dealing with because Jesus didn't just, even though he starts with the Jews, he is sent to the Jews. Ultimately, Jesus is sent for all people. So, Jesus goes ahead and says, you know what, I'm going the short way. And even going the short way, it's been a couple days, he shows up and he's, he's tired, he's worried from his journey. 
And you have no idea how blessed we are to have cars <laughs> that help us to not be worried. Could you imagine if we had to walk everywhere to do what we had to do? He's walking several days, and this is where he stops to get some water to, to rest. And uh, we don't really have any real reason to believe that Jesus is in some sort of time crunch. So uh, the other reason we would think that he would go there and stop there is really to offer these Samaritans eternal life. This may have been a shock to the Jews, but he began to already share with them the truths of who he was. It's the same kind of thing that he told Nicodemus. If they would believe in him, then they would have eternal life. And that's what he's going to share. So like I said, this place that he ends up stopping, it's a place called uh, Sychar, and it's near the field that Jacob had given his son, and it was now the site of Jacob's well. If you want to read about the purchase of this particular plot of land, it's in Genesis 33. But they were probably pretty proud of this, this plot of land because of its history. And to give you an idea of why this is important, because you're like, wait a minute, these are Samaritans. Jacob, he, he was a Jew. I don't understand what's the whole deal with this. But to give you a, a we're going to go into greater detail in a moment. To give you a brief history, though, to understand this, is that um, before the Babylonian exile, the, true the 12 tribes were actually separated into two different kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was 10 of the tribes, all of them except for Judah and Benjamin. And then the southern kingdom was obviously Judah and Benjamin. So the northern kingdom actually gets taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. And when this happens, the, the, the Jewish people from the, from the northern kingdom, they were the, those who still survived, there weren't as many of them, so the Assyrian king brought in a bunch of people from foreign lands to repopulate this area that is Samaria, this area that we're going through, so they'd have more people to work the land and all of those things. So because of this, the remnants of those Jewish people still claimed Jacob as their forefather. So this was a pretty important site to them, and uh, this is probably why Jesus stops there. And if you go on to verses 7 through 9, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So what happens is, as Jesus makes his way to the area, he goes to sit at the well. The, his disciples had all gone into town to buy food and, and all of that stuff. So Jesus is alone. He goes and sits by the well, and he sees this Samaritan woman sitting there. And I imagine it's a good thing that he's by himself, because like I said, the Jewish people had a pretty deep-seated hatred of the Samaritans, so they would have probably been freaking out a little bit to see Jesus talking <laughs> to this Samaritan woman. So Jesus takes the opportunity to begin speaking to her. And uh, to really get your head around the significance of what's happening here, because when you read this, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. She's like, wait a minute, why are you talking to me, a woman, and, and from Samaria? It, and then it says in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with the, the Samaritans. You don't really feel the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, why this is such a big deal. So like I said earlier, the 12 tribes were split into two. We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, all 10 tribes, except for Judah and Benjamin. Southern kingdoms was the remaining two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. 
The northern kingdom was taken into captivity in 722 BC, and then the southern kingdom was not taken into captivity, but they were by uh, the Babylonians in about 600 BC. So at this point, both, both of the kingdoms were taken captive. But when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity, the Assyrians brought in a bunch of foreigners to take over the area, to repopulate the area, to work the area. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17, 24. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So now we have this place that formerly belonged to the Jews, the northern kingdom, although the northern and southern kingdom are button heads at this point right now. But uh, uh, these are still the descendants of Abraham. They're still Jewish people. They're living there. And uh, what happens is, is all these foreigners come in. And when they come in, they bring with them all their foreign gods, all their foreign ritualistic practices and religious practices with them. And, and what happens is, is the, the Jews that remained there begin to essentially assimilate with the people that had come in there. And they begin to intermingle with the foreigners. They begin to worship their gods alongside the God of Abraham, which always seems strange to me. Because, <laughs> I, I guess I say that because it's always easier from the outside looking in. But that seems to be what is always getting Israel in trouble as they keep looking away from, from God and towards other gods and trying to worship other people that gets them in trouble. And, and that's a big part of the reason why they went into captivity. And then they just keep on doing it. So they begin to intermingle with these foreigners. They begin to worship their gods alongside our, our God. They begin to get involved in those religious practices. They begin to marry these foreigners that have come in. And uh, as they do this, we're forming the people that are now known as the Samaritans. That's why there's a history there. That's why they consider Jacob their father, because some of the Jewish people are uh, intermingled in that lineage through that. And if that's not bad enough, you have these people kind of separating off and they're getting involved in all kinds of this stuff, you'll remember that when the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, at some point... Uh, I believe it's several hundred years later, the remnant is given an opportunity to rebuild Jerusalem. And if you've read that story, they begin to build the wall. You have a bunch of people that end up fighting against them, saying, hey, you can't do this. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to who the people were that were so against the Jewish people from the southern kingdom rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the, all of that? It was the Samaritans. So not only... Are they a people that is, that is now completely intermingled with foreigners? But they also tried to stop them from rebuilding Jerusalem. Basically, it looks something like this to them. The full-blooded Jews who only worshipped God, the God of Israel, they began to hate this mixed-blooded pagan idol and God-worshipping Samaritans. That's kind of what's in their mind. That's what they're thinking. So, so this isn't a, a minor disagreement. It's not like, I mean, these people genuinely hate each other, and they hold, their, the, uh, the, they hold the Samaritans accountable for all those things that happened to them so many hundreds of years ago. So as a result of this history, this isn't some like, 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 oh, this is weird that you're talking to me. I mean, I'm not used to it, but, no, but this is a big deal. 
that Jesus is talking to this woman for two reasons. One, she's a woman, and two, she's a Samaritan on top of that. So she says, how is it that you ask me for a drink? But Jesus sees things a little bit differently than the rest of us see things. It's one of those things that one of the things you should be praying for quite often is that, you could, that, that God would allow you to see as he sees, to feel as he feels, to love as he loves, because you'll find if you do that, your attitude will begin to change towards people that you previously might not had uh, uh, the ability to, to deal with or accept or any of those things. Ask God to change your heart in those areas because he certainly doesn't see them with the same prejudices that run around our world today. Amen. Mm. So Jesus sees things a little bit differently. And the truth is is that Jesus is always being accused of associating with the worst of society. I mean, that's why Jesus had to say, listen, it's it's not those who are well that need a physician. It's those who are sick. Jesus was willing to meet with those that the rest of the world had already cast aside and thought less of. And in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now that Jesus has got her attention, and because it's such a shock, because it's so crazy he's talking to her, he actually has her attention, like, wait a minute, why is he talking to me? Maybe I should hear what he has to say. He says to her, basically, well, you think this is shocking? What's truly shocking is, is if you knew who I was, you should be asking me for water. What's shocking is not that I'm asking you. What's shocking is that you're not asking me to draw water for you. Because if you were to ask me for a drink, the water that I give you would be living water. And it begins to explain spiritual truths in a way that she would understand. I'm glad God does this. Because sometimes, I don't know about you guys, probably not you guys, you all look like a bunch of really smart, intelligent, understanding people. But for me, sometimes I'm a little dense when it comes to the things of God. So I'm glad that God didn't make it where you had to have a PhD to understand his word. But instead, he, he, he meets us at our level and he shares. So he begins to share with this lady in a way that she can understand. So you could probably guess that a woman that has found out the well drawing water has some experience with wells and water and drawing it up. So he begins to to explain eternal life in terms that she can understand. But the problem is, is that this water that he was offering couldn't be found in any river or any well. It could only be found from him. And this water that he's talking about, we're going to see, is is the source of, of eternal life. It's the gift of eternal life. But just like me sometimes, we're going to see She kind of misunderstands what Jesus is saying. So we go on to verse 11, and it says, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I wonder if she was insulted by Jesus saying that he could get something better. Because like I said, they're kind of proud of this history. He says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his son's. And his livestock. The woman now is beginning to look at Jesus like he's a little crazy. She didn't understand what he's talking about. He's all this talk about ask me for a drink and and I'll give you living water. and, And he doesn't even have a bucket. Here's the thing. Some of you guys may be familiar with how wells work. Some of you may not. 
But here's the way it works. You dig a very, very, very deep hole. And at some point, you get below the water table. Now, this always seemed weird and crazy to me, but there's some point underneath us, you get deep enough, the water is intermixed with the ground and the rock and all that stuff, and there's, there's water. That's the water table. That's where water is. And if you dig deep enough, you can actually, uh, back then they would dig holes and they would, they, they, it would fill up with water. The area that they had dug out would fill up with water and they'd take a bucket down there and pull it out. Nowadays, um, we go ahead and send a, a, a pipe down there with a pump at the bottom and the, it'll pump the water out of that area of the well. But the thing is, is you have to dig quite deep, depending on where you are, to hit this water table. And uh, it's not like something where you can just lean over the edge with a ladle and get some water. It's deep. You got to send it. Like, have you ever seen the old pictures of wells? That's why there's the big crank with the rope on it, because you have to send the bucket way deep into the well. So not only does he not have anything to store the water, to get the water out, he doesn't have a way to get it down in to the well. So she says, wait a minute. How is this that you say you're going to give me water? How is this possible? You have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. So she goes, well, where do you, then where do you go to get this living water? Because the thing is, is, she's been to this water, along with all the, the women in this area that have been to this well. They all uh, take their, their buckets or whatever. They drop it down in. They pull it out. They all pull out the same water, and none of them have pulled out living water before. <laughs> it's just been regular water. So she's wondering, where is this living water coming from? And the thing is, since you obviously wouldn't be getting this living water from the well she's talking about, he has to be getting it from somewhere else. And I imagine she's familiar with the area too. I think they would know if there was you know, some secret well around the corner that, that handed out living water. And then in addition to that, she says, wait a minute. That must mean you're saying that you're greater than our father, Jacob. They thought pretty highly of Jacob. They still claimed that lineage. And now there's got Jesus guy coming in and, and she's wondering, is he trying to say that he's better than our forefathers, that he's better than us? And this woman begins to make the same mistake that so many of us do. We begin to try to wrap our head around what God is doing and we miss the reality of the supernatural because we're so caught up in the natural of what's going on. We miss the reality of what God's trying to do because we already have an idea in our head of what is possible. And I believe that we talk ourselves out of miracles quite often because we've already decided what is possible for what God can do. We end up putting God in a box of our own design. And as she continues on with this line of thinking, she could miss out on the very thing that Jesus was trying to give to her. This living water, eternal life. All because she was convinced that she knew how water worked. She understood water. So obviously this Jesus guy, he's, he's talking nonsense. And then in verse 13 through 14, it says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So knowing that she's not quite getting it, Jesus once again tries to explain. And he says, listen, this water 
it's not like the water that you're thinking of. You know, it's almost like he's got a smack around. I'm using an analogy. We're not talking about the water that you're talking about. And here's the thing, that one thing was true back then that is still true today. People need daily water. Without it, we become thirsty. I don't know if you know this, but thirst is actually your body's way of telling you that, hey, this body needs some water because if I don't get water soon, at some point, this body's going to stop functioning. It's, it's, our, it's the way we signal our body that we need it. And those who drank from the well that she was drawing water from, and that's where she's, she's struggling with this and understanding this, and Jesus is trying to explain, no, it's different. Like, listen, the water that you get, when you draw from that well, when you give that water, eventually people will get thirsty again, even though it temporarily satisfied their thirst. He says, but the water I'm talking about, it's not like the water in this well. When you draw from this water, your thirst will be eternally quenched. The water that I'm going to give you is going to satisfy forever. The water that she's thinking about, it satisfies a physical need. A physical need of humans to need water to continue to live. What is it, something like 70 or 80% of our body is water. We kind of need it to keep on going. And it doesn't take long. You can live something like, uh, you can easily live 40 days without food. But only after a few days without water, your body begins to deteriorate. And I don't think it's much longer than three days without water before uh, you'll die. You can't go without water. But Jesus isn't talking about that water. He says, listen, the water that I give will satisfy forever. The water that I'm talking about, its purpose is not to satisfy the physical requirement of your body to have water. It's not to satisfy your physical thirst. Instead, it satisfies continually that hole that we have inside of us if we don't know Jesus. That hole that so many people are looking to fill with drugs and alcohol and cars and their job and maybe their husband or their wife or, or, or men and women. We're, we're always looking for something else to fill a hole and we don't realize it. If you look closely, if you think about it, it's like in school when they, they gave you the square peg and you're not supposed to put it in the round hole. Well, it turns out you're not supposed to try to fill a God-sized hole, a God-shaped hole in your life with all these other things because it doesn't actually fill it. And when Jesus fills this hole, when he gives you this water that satisfies forever, it does this in perpetuity because it becomes a spring inside of you that wells up with eternal life. I like what the Life Application New Testament Commentary says on, this, says on this. It says, The water from Jacob's well would indeed satisfy the woman's thirst, but only temporarily. So also are all the other drinks of life. They never satisfy. Some of them even create more thirst. The human need for love, food, sex, security, and approval, even when met, does not give complete satisfaction. Attempts to find full satisfaction will lead only to disappointment and despair. But the water that Jesus offers takes away thirst altogether. Jesus' water continually satisfies the desire for God's presence because it becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. The gift that Jesus gives, this perpetual spring, suggests the availability, accessibility, and abundance of the divine life. For believers. 
But she still isn't getting it. She's still not hearing what Jesus says. Because once again, she resorts back to what she understands about water. In verse 15, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is trying to give her a spiritual truth, but she can't get past what she understands in the natural. She can't get past her own experiences in life. So she says, wait a minute. I kind of like this idea of water that, uh, that quenches your thirst forever because that means me and my friends, we're not going to have to come. I mean, it takes a lot of work to draw water and carry it back to the, to the town. This is a lot of work. I mean, this, I like what you're selling, Jesus. This seems like a good plan. All the while, missing completely what Jesus is trying to tell her, what Jesus is trying to share with her. And when Pastor Joseph comes up next week and he begins to talk about the next section, you're going to see that, that Jesus actually just has to move on. He starts talking about something else because she's not getting this truth that he's trying to share with her. Instead of understanding the spiritual truth, the spiritual fulfillment and eternal life that Jesus is trying to share, she can't see past her physical thirst and that effort that's required to satisfy it. Church, as we end today, as we wrap it up, I just want to encourage you to make sure that we don't end up ourselves like this woman, where we can't see past what's naturally going on around us, so that when God is trying to do something supernatural, when he's trying to do a miracle in your life, that we end up shutting it down. And the truth is, is here in the United States, I think we have the, the, the hardest time with that, because our entire life, we've been taught that Nothing can happen without something causing it, something you know, that we can be measured and scientifically measured and all that stuff. We're told our whole life that miracles don't exist and everything is, can be explained by science and all this. And that's why when you go overseas, when we were in Africa, we saw so many more miracles take place because these people still believe in the supernatural. They haven't had their heart hardened so much to what God may want to do that they try to explain everything away with their own reason and their own experience. One of the things that God has really been placing on my heart lately over the, probably the last few years is to really start taking a deeper look at his word and start taking it for what it is. And to reevaluate even some of the practices, the things that we do as a church that I do individually and, and come to the conclusion that if it doesn't line up with his word, why do we do it? If it does line up with his word and we're not doing it, why not? And the thing is, is I think far too often we let our own experience influence what we allow the Word of God to say to us. We look at our life, we look at our experiences, we look at the things that have happened to us, and we take that and we let that influence and dictate what the Word of God means. But church, I think we need to make sure that we're letting the Word of God dictate and influence our experiences instead. Amen? So let's not end up like this woman. Let's start thinking differently, taking the word of God for what it means and don't get so wrapped up in what we already know and let God do what he wants to do, amen?